This week on the Cameron Journal Podcast, we are talking about the outbreak of coronavirus in China. We're talking about the latest on the impeachment update. We're going to talk about Trump's new water rules and the end of birth tourism. The nice thing about this week is that there was enough not scandals that we have some chances to talk about some other things. So strap in. It's the Cameron Journal Podcast. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. I'd like to start this week with a special note. Jim Lair of the Jim Lair PBS NewsHour died this week. He was 85. And that is super sad because he was one of the news broadcasters that I looked up to. And he was one of the few people that believed news was not a commodity. It was something to be offered. It was important for democracy. It was to keep people informed. It was not a product to be sold. It wasn't something to be commodified. Um, people of a certain generation will remember Jim Lair. If you ever watched the, G- the PBS NewsHour with Jim Lair, it was one of the few sources of kind of what I call pure news, um, something I try to offer here, and we try to offer at rougesmagazine.com. And it just is worthy. It should be noted that we've lost one of the great newsmen of the business, one of the last of a generation who doesn't treat news as a commodity or a narrative or something to generate ad sales or to get people to have an emotion, be that happy, be that sad, nervous, frustration, fear. He just wanted to offer you information. Here's the world. Here's what happened. Done and dusted. And that's something that is pretty much all but gone from the news business. And I thought it was important to note. Anyway, Hello, everyone. My name is Cameron Cowan. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. And um, as you may have guessed, and (laughs) it's the end of January. We made it through, um, which has just been crazy insane um, with everything going on in the impeachment trial in Iran. And January has been a very, very busy month. And While we've been focused on Iran and impeachment, other important things have been going on. As I said in the preview, like a change in water rules, which we're going to get to. This week is one of the great weeks I enjoy because enough things happened this week that we actually get to talk about something else other than impeachment or Brexit or any of the really big news stories that have dominated this weekly podcast for the past several weeks. Um, We actually could talk about other things. There have been other things going on. Life has been continuing. And this is one of the weeks where I can say, oh, good, I can cover six or seven news stories in 45 minutes and we can move on. So I wanted to um, focus on other things before we get around to what has happened in the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump this week. Um, besides mentioning the death of Jim Lair, who is one of my favorite news broadcasters. The, one of the interesting stories 
that is kind of behind the scenes. And we will touch on um, Bernie Sanders and his leading in multiple national polls and also um, leading in New Hampshire and trading first slot with Biden in Iowa. Um, One of the interesting things that um, came across the wire this week is the Trump administration is going to restrict visas for pregnant women to stop quote-unquote birth tourism. Now, if you don't know what birth tourism is, I'll tell you. Birth tourism is when a woman will get a visa, come to America towards the end of her pregnancy, stay three or four months, um, have their child here, and at birth that child automatically becomes a U.S. citizen. So, um, and it will make the child eligible for dual citizenship in America and their home country. Now, the wonderful thing is that... um, uh, the wonderful thing about the change in this rule is it will slow that down. This was very popular with women from China who wanted dual American and Chinese citizenship. It was also very popular, very interesting enough, with Russian women who wanted dual U.S. and Russian citizenship. So obviously for women of a certain means, this isn't going to be, you know, very poor women, but women of means could fly to America, have their birth here, pay cash for the whole thing, obviously, and um, and uh, and obtain U.S. citizenship for their child um, on that basis. Now, um, uh, women, are, the regulations on that are going to be changing. It says here, according to Slate.com, that the State Department announced new regulations on Thursday that allow officers examining visa applications to turn away pregnant women if they believe those women are visiting the U.S. just to give birth. The rule, which will go into effect Friday, yesterday, is meant to target so-called birth tourism, one of the immigration issues President Donald Trump has railed against in his campaign to limit refugees and immigrants coming to the U.S. According to the new regulations, pregnant women who look as if they may be traveling just to give birth so their children can be U.S. citizens will now need to prove they have the money to cover living expenses and medical treatment. These rules are similar to those already in place for visa applicants citing medical needs. It's unclear how an officer making such a decision will determine how far along the pregnancy is, or even if a woman is pregnant to begin with. The officers are not authorized to ask women if they are pregnant. Already, according to the New York Times, it was possible for consular officers to decline visas for women they believed were traveling just to give birth. But the new rule states explicitly that birth tourism is not a valid reason to visit the U.S. and gives visa officers greater authority to turn pregnant women away. According to the State Department, the rule is meant to deal a blow to businesses that organize trips for pregnant women. This rule will help prevent operators in the birth tourism industry from profiting off treating U.S. citizenship as a commodity, sometimes through potentially criminal acts. Um, so that, I thought that was interesting. It's a, it's a way in which um, things are changing, you know, for people. That's probably broadly speaking a good idea in terms of um in terms of uh in terms of slowing down birth tourism and creating u.s citizens that will likely never live here and will only you use their citizenship to be educated here or to come work here when they're adults 
Um, and that, like I said, <clears throat> it touches a variety of women, usually it means if they're flying far. Um, however, it also, it also can be, it already is being something that's um, happening for asylum seekers. So it's just one of those things that it's, it's good to be aware of. It's one of those news stories that's good to be aware of, good to think about. Um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting rule change to, to slow down something that a lot of people may not necessarily be aware of. The other really big international story this week that I thought was quite interesting um, was the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, China. So it it's supposed to be a SARS-like virus, and it is the symptoms are similar to pneumonia and they're already screening passengers at US airports there have been two cases in the US one in Seattle and one in Chicago China has restricted travel in five cities with a total of 30 million people over the uh, lunar new year to stop the spread of the virus throughout China I believe 60 people in China have already died um, it says here um, hundreds of people, this is from Vox.com, hundreds of people have been sickened by a new coronavirus called 2019, 2019-NCOV in at least eight countries, including the U.S. Coronaviruses attack the respiratory system, sometimes targeting the cells deep within the lungs. Only seven, including 2019-NCOV, SARS, and MERS, have evolved to infect humans. The outbreak was first reported to the World Health Organization by Chinese officials on December 31st in Wuhan, a city of 11 million in the Hubei province. By mid-January, it had begun spreading rapidly, leading to more than 600 confirmed cases and 18 deaths. On January 23rd, quarantine measures expanded from Wuhan to two additional cities about 50 miles east of Wuhan, Huanggang and Izhou effectively stifling the movement of nearly 20 million people. But the World Health Organization has ruled out that the outbreak is not yet a global health emergency, a rare designation the agency gives outbreaks that pose an international risk. There are still many unknowns about this outbreak. Experts aren't sure which animal carries this virus and transmitted it to humans, how easily it spreads among people, or how deadly it may be. As I said, even from the time that this was written, and it's a live, it's a live update, um, China has cracked down on more cities and is stopping more people from, uh, from moving in the country, um, so that, uh, they can try to attempt to stop the, th the spread of, of the virus. Because um, it is, like I said, it presents like pneumonia, and it can be incredibly deadly, and very little is known about it. And of course, there's no vaccines, and they're still working on effective treatment, you know, all of those things that happen when something new. Um, this was not supposed to be able to be transmitted to humans, and it has mutated to be able to infect humans. So it's very, very new territory. Um, it's... The second, I mean, we had Ebola in 2018 and 2019, and we're kicking off the new year with coronavirus. So if you haven't heard about that outbreak this week, um, you should. Um, if you, I guess, live in an affected city, you might want to start wearing masks outside or avoiding public places. Um, there's been no real public advice given to the U.S. citizens because there's only two cases 
um, in our country, but it could begin spreading quite quickly, depending on how contagious it may be, how many people that the two people who had it have been in contact with. Um, it's so frightening that in Seattle, they're treating the person who has it um, using robots. The doctors and nurses are trying to interact with the patient as little as possible. So they're actually using a smart robot in order to interact with the patient, which I thought was interesting and very sci-fi and very modern. Um, I thought that was fascinating, at least for me. It might not be for you, but I thought it was very interesting that that's, you know, you see that in sci-fi movies and now it's a real sort of viable, viable thing that is definitely, definitely happening and definitely a thing. So that's that's kind of where we are with coronavirus. I don't have much on it right now because we don't know a lot. It literally just started um, reaching the U.S. this week. The crackdowns just started this week, even though it kind of the infections kind of began in late December. So we're only about a month into this and it could last a while, depending on how many people in China are affected, how much movement is going on and how many more cases might pop up here in the U.S. So hopefully no, not a lot of people will die and uh, hopefully they'll be isolated so that, you know, there's not a lot of people that get infected by this sort of thing. Respiratory illnesses are quite, quite, difficult. Um, and they're hard to get over and they take a long time to get over. And as someone who's had long-term respiratory chronic illness, I can tell you that not being able to breathe is deeply problematic. So hearts and minds, thoughts and prayers go out to those people in China who are dealing with that and having to handle that. And, um, obviously to the two patients here in America as well. So let's talk water this week. Um, the Trump administration is changing the pollution protections for America's rivers and streams set down by the Obama administration. One of the things the Obama administration did was it set very stringent rules on dumping of pollutants in waterways, which you would think, given the Clean Water, Clean Air Act, that would already be in place, but there they need to be more regulations. And this week, the Trump administration is reversing those. It says here, the Trump administration is set to continue its dismantling of Obama-era environmental protections for the country's waterways on Thursday, issuing new rules that remove federal protections for half the nation's wetlands and hundreds of thousands of small waterways. Trump repealed Obama's 2015 Waters of the United States regulation in September, a set of rules restricting dumping and development that affected the country's rivers, streams, and wetlands. Now the Trump administration is finalizing its own set of water rules that will, for the first time in decades, allow for pesticides and fertilizers to be dumped in waterways and open up wetlands to new development. The Obama era water the Obama water rule was loathed by farmers, a crucial vote bank for Trump in 2020, as well as developers and the fossil fuel industry. It covered 60% of American waterways, including large waterways like the Chesapeake Bay, Mississippi River, and smaller rivers and streams, as well as seasonal waterways. Those protections limited, for example, the pollution runoff from fertilizers and pesticides from nearby farms, the dumping of industrial chemicals by extraction companies, and wanton development on real estate that affected nearby waterways. Golf course developers like Trump were vocal opponents of the Obama rule. Um, and it is... 
it reg it undoes regulations on waterways all the way back to the 1972 Clean Water Act. So obviously, that's going to deeply affect um, water that you drink. I mean, people don't understand that, you know, waterways. It's the water is a closed system. And so when you start dumping those types of chemicals, it affects everything. It affects the oceans, ultimately, causing fish-killing algae blooms. Um, it affects climate change in the bigger picture. Um, and it also can affect groundwater because water from rivers and streams seeps from its banks into groundwater. And so ultimately, those chemicals end up in you and me. Um, so that is deeply troubling in terms of... Um, allowing those types of chemicals to just kind of be wantonly put out into the environment with no proper waste protection rules. We do not have a lot of wetlands left in this country. We don't. There was a lot of areas of America that were, were swamps um, in Louisiana, Florida, the Everglades, all this type of thing. And most people don't realize that is nature's filtration system. Swamps are really, really good at cleaning out toxins and other bad things in the environment. We have kind of reduce the number of filters in nature because what you know wetlands get drained the trees get chopped down they get built on you end up with flooding problems because it's the low point where the water went you know the water has its own natural flow and the wetlands were there to absorb that and um and it's uh it 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 makes it harder to get rid of silton toxins in the environment. We're dumping in more toxins and also allowing development on wetlands that are supposed to get rid of those toxins. So these water rules are kind of a double whammy of environmental problems. And 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 listeners should know, I'm not a crazy environmentalist. Um, I'm I'm not kind of like, oh my god, the planet, the planet. That's not what I'm concerned about. However, I am concerned in a very pragmatic way about what we're doing to make sure that we ensure clean water, we ensure that we have a good environment, and then we're not unnecessarily dumping waste into our environment that can be disposed of in another safer way that's not going to affect everything that lives in water, everything that depends on water, because this stuff goes out. It affects the fish in the water. It affects animals that feed on those fish. It affects birds that land on that water and the birds that feed on those fish. You know, seals, manatees, all those sorts of things. And ultimately, everything goes into the ocean. And when you start dumping even more of those things, fertilizers and pesticides and these types of things, into the ocean and get rid of the wetlands that can do some of the work of cleaning that stuff up, you can end up with knock-on environmental effects that are just absolutely devastating to the environment. And this is something that the next president who actually cares about the environment will have to put back in place and force operators to handle their chemicals more carefully and not just wantonly dump them in waterways. Unfortunately, once those wetlands get developed, there's not going to be much more that can be done. The buildings are there, the land has been sold, the wetlands are basically permanently lost. So this is a dangerous rule change all around, and it's a it's a sad day for our rivers and waterways. So one of those things that you should be aware of. So let's move on to the fun stuff, impeachment and 2020. And we're going to lead off with Hillary Clinton's comments about Bernie Sanders. That was a fun scandal this week. And we're also going to talk about Bernie Sanders surging in the polls. So here's how it starts. Um, this week, Bernie Sanders um, is up to 29 points in a national Ipsos poll. Um, it, he's the person who scored the highest 
so far of the candidates left in the field. Um, a lot of people were surprised and taken aback. And it was it's kind of been indicative of a whole Sanders surge. So Sanders kind of got this great national polling. He's in first in New Hampshire. He's been trading back and forth in Biden and with Biden in Iowa, depending on which poll you get. Six out of seven polls, you know, show Biden ahead. But there are two or three polls with a bigger sample size that show Sanders is gaining. And Sanders is just having this big surge, this big moment. And I think Part of it is the last debate performance, but part of it is he's also benefiting from positive media coverage. And I talked about this when Buttigieg was up in both Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, you know, a good poll in your favor can generate lots of positive media press, and that can be just the juice a campaign needs. Now, Buttigieg, it didn't necessarily really go anywhere. Buttigieg is sitting in a solid, he's trading third and fourth with, with Elizabeth Warren in most polls. But Sanders in a head-to-head -head matchup, beats Trump every time, even in states where you wouldn't think they would vote for a Democrat, um, or even difficult states like North Carolina and Florida. And the Sanders surge is causing multiple people to freak out. And that's where we get to Hillary Clinton's comments about Bernie Sanders when she said, nobody likes him and nobody wants to vote for him. Now, obviously... The progressive left on YouTube and elsewhere were like, oh, the Democrat establishment is freaking out because Bernie Sanders is surging in the polls and Bernie Sanders is doing so well and he just might get the nomination and they're freaking out because he will not play their games and he's not going to go along with the establishment. And you also have... Um, obviously Sanders supporters who are crying foul because they feel like Sanders got robbed in 2016 by Hillary Clinton. And this is something where as much as I appreciate Hillary and as much as I am still very much with her, voted for her, happy to do so, posted a dozen million things about her on social media a day in the closing days of the 2016 campaign, I have to say that this is a subject on which I think she should, broadly speaking, be silent. And here's why. Anything she says especially when it comes to Bernie Sanders, is always going to be taken the wrong way. She literally could come on television and say, I believe Bernie Sanders spins straw into gold like Rumpelstiltskin, and someone would take issue with it because of how people feel like he was treated in the 2016 election. So if I were her, if I had her ear, I would say, when if anyone brings up Bernie Sanders, say absolutely nothing at all. Not one word. Literally not one word. Because it's always going to be taken wrong. And it's also, the comment is not, is just factually untrue. It's not true that no one likes him. Probably in the circles that she travels in with establishment Democrats, no one really likes him. I'm sure like in her circle of friends, that's probably true. But that broadly speaking is not true. Bernie Sanders has the most organic, small donations of any candidate in U.S. history. He has branded himself and marketed himself as someone who's going to stand up for the 99%. He won precincts, caucuses, and primaries across the country in 2016. He is leading in places like California, which is a ton of convention delegates. Um... 
even in his tussle with Elizabeth Warren during the last debate, Sanders managed to come out ahead. He is consistently putting out plans that people like and are interested in. And even most importantly, Joe Rogan, who is questionable on so many levels and says problematic things and does problematic things and platforms people that like Milo Yiannopoulos and I have a really hard time listening to his show. I'm not a huge Joe Rogan person. He's very bro-y. He's very, you know, work out all the time, all this type of thing. Um, even he admitted that he's not voting for Trump and he is for sure voting for Bernie Sanders. That's huge. He has 150 million people that listen to him. Like he has a huge, massive audience. If people like Joe Rogan are being like, mm, Sanders is a better deal than what we've got with Trump, that signals a movement. And that's where Hillary's got this one wrong, is I don't think she's understanding that. And I, I've said this myself. If the Democrats want to win in 2020, they have to have a better idea. They just do. And the, the person who really has those ideas is Bernie Sanders. He's coming along with an agenda, with an idea. He has a lot of people behind him. And I think once voting starts, I think everyone is going to be pleasantly or unpleasantly surprised how Bernie Sanders can blow it out of the water. Do I think he's going to win in Iowa? No, I think it's still very much a toss up. It could be him or Biden or Buttigieg one of those three, or even Warren. It's basically a four-way race at this point. Um, but you're going to end up with a chance to see how many people actually vote for him and see what kind of support is there. And I think you're going to be surprised. I think it's going to be even more surprising when he wins in New Hampshire and that's energy begets energy and momentum begets momentum. And then it's down to South Carolina and then it's out to Nevada and then it's Super Tuesday. And I think everyone's going to be surprised when Bernie Sanders starts winning races, finishing second and the, or even just starts winning because it's obvious that's where the support lies. And I think what's interesting with the national polling being at 29 percent and it being so high, seven points ahead of Biden, is that I think people are kind of like, He's got a better idea. He's got a better plan. There were only six people on stage at the last debate. So Sanders got a lot more talking time than he has before. And despite the New York Times weird double endorsement of Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar, which I'm not even going to go there with them, like all this type of thing. People are looking for a better deal. They're looking for someone who's consistent. They're looking for someone who's going to solve the problems that we have in this country. And the reality, for better or for worse, as much as I myself may not necessarily be a huge fan of Mr. Sanders, he has the better idea that people are looking for. He has the social programs. He has the investments. He has the tax plan. He's written legislation. He's gotten things done. All that's very important. Now, there's a lot of people. One of the problematic things with Bernie Sanders is you have a lot of people who say he's been in Congress for how long? What has he passed? Um, he has, you know, when has he ever done anything for the black community? Because you can't win without the African-American vote, the Democratic Party. You know, people are looking to be kind of like, OK, he's out here and he's popular. But, you know, it's like, where where's the receipts? You know, where's the stuff where, you know, Where's his legislation? All this type of thing. Um, what good work has has he done? 
and sometimes it's been co- it's been sponsoring things sometimes it's been co-sponsoring things sometimes it's been voting against things like the Iraq war and Sanders criticizes Biden a lot on that um there's multiple factors but that one of the criticisms that is quite valid is he's been in Congress a long time and what does he have has what does he have to show for it not much that's just the reality of the situation not much um but again he still offers a better deal and he's been saying these things for a very long time, long before they were in vogue. And this is something where, returning to Hillary Clinton and the dangerous comments, where I think Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders could really come together. Because if they came together and talked about the progressive things that they've worked on together, the progressive values that they've held, because a lot of the things he's talking about, Hillary Clinton worked on in the 90s too, then I think that would lend a powerful voice to his plans. And that's where, although I think she should keep silent, if she feels the need to say something, I would talk about how he's been there for progressive values like universal health care, universal child care, pre-K, all this type of thing, for a really long time, since the 80s and 90s, when no one was talking about those things in mainstream politics, and have those conversations and be supportive of the Democrats having a truly new idea. Do I think that will happen? Probably not. But if she's going to be talking about Bernie Sanders, that's where the conversation should focus. Lastly today, I want to talk about impeachment. I did not lead with impeachment because I it's been on a lot of news channels in a lot of places. And if you're like most people, you've probably had it with impeachment. Um, but I don't necessarily want to talk about process or talk about what is being what has been said. On Monday, they passed the rules and the initial rules did not allow witnesses and new documentation. It's unclear after the opening arguments, which were set to be over three days, um, lasting 24 hours um, each. So the Democrats finished up their three days of arguments today. The Republicans on Saturday will begin their defense opening arguments. Um, and, um, uh, and, uh, and so that, that process is, is ongoing. That's where we are in the process. However, I want to talk about some of the things kind of on the side of the impeachment inquiry. And uh, one this interesting story from Politico, I thought was interesting because it pertains to new witnesses and new documentation. So one of the most contentious things about this trial is that um, McConnell and the Republicans are trying to block new witnesses and new documentation from being entered into the trial at this stage. A lot of this is to block former National Security Advisor John Bolton from testifying, as well as Lev Parnas, who was Rudy Giuliani's fixer during the Ukraine scandal. According to Politico, um, this whole thing hinges on a guy named Lamar Alexander, Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee. He is 79 and he is retiring. And uh, there's a lot of kind of backdoor channeling, backdoor ideas to see if he will vote to allow witnesses and documentation. It says here, um, one of the most important questions of the trial 
um, whether to subpoena witnesses, the 79-year-old Tennessee Republican senator is a wild card. Privately, senior Senate Republicans expect the vote to seek witness testimony to fail. But they are watching Alexander and several other Republicans closely. And wherever Alexander comes down is almost sure to be the majority position in the Senate. Three GOP senators have expressed some level of support for calling witnesses, and if they joined all Democrats, it would result in a 50-50 tie and likely be defeated. Unless Chief Justice John Roberts shocked Washington by wading in with a tiebreak, Democrats need one more Republican to break ranks and upend GOP plans for a swift Trump acquittal. That's got both parties eagerly eyeing Alexander. He's a retiring defender of the Senate as an institution who's occasionally bucked his party, but he also counts Majority Leader Mitch McConnell as a longtime ally. He's more hesitant to criticize Trump than are some other Republicans, but he also has said it was inappropriate for Trump to ask foreign governments to investigate his political opponents. I thought the idea that someone like Lamar Alexander would be um, interested in this, I thought was very interesting. Um, they also talk about Susan Collins, um, Lisa Murkowski, and Mitt Romney, um, you know, as also being potentials um, to vote for witnesses and um, and documentation. So I thought that was an interesting story. Um, there's still the in the initial set of rules, witnesses and documentation were not allowed. However, there is still. Um, an opportunity for witnesses and documentation to be allowed at the end of closing arguments. Um, there'll be more votes to decide on that. So there's still an opportunity for that to occur. It's not quite a done deal yet. Um, on the matter of the performance of Adam Schiff, um, who has is the chairman of the um, House Intelligence Committee, um, I found this very interesting article from Alexander Hamilton. So Adam Schiff has spent the last couple days arguing on the first article of impeachment and making his case and laying out the evidence in what in a normal trial would be opening remarks. Um, today, Jerry Nadler took on the task of arguing for Article 2. And this story notes that they both used a particular quote from Alexander Hamilton that I think is apropos for the situation we find ourselves in. When a man unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, possessed of considerable talents, having the advantage of military habits, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principles of liberty, when such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join in the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the general government and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall in with all the nonsense of zealots of the day, it may justly be suspected that his object is to throw things into confusion, that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. The quote, it says here, is from a note Hamilton wrote in response to George Washington. Schiff offered the quote in full and suggested it was part of the reason founders like Hamilton put the power of impeachment in the Constitution. Nadler went further in implicitly connecting it to Trump, calling it a, quote, especially striking portrait and saying, quote, Hamilton was a wise man. He foresaw dangers far ahead of his time. 
These are not the first times these words have been recalled in reference to Trump. Both Schiff and Nadler used them during impeachment proceedings last month, and they've occasionally cropped up in opinion pieces about Trump over his first three years in office. Conservative columnist William Crystal wrote a piece for the now-defunct Weekly Standard in January 2018, titled, Did Alexander Hamilton Predict the Rise of Donald Trump?, that cited the quote. Historian Ron Chernow referenced it in a piece for the Washington Post in October, arguing that Hamilton had a Trumpish politician in mind. Um, around the same time, Senator Brian Schatz, Democrat Hawaii, tweeted the full quote on a thread on Twitter and said it was Alexander Hamilton arguing for including impeachment in the Constitution, which is not true. That's not where the quote came from. But I thought that was this, you know, there's been a trend in the impeachment proceedings to mention a lot of the founding fathers, partly because many Democrats believe, and I tend to agree, the founding fathers anticipated at some point in the Republic, someone like Trump by hook or by crook would be elected and that measures and steps need to be taken in order to prevent him from becoming a despot and a dictator and destroying the whole American experiment altogether. And impeachment was one way they felt Congress could restrict the power of the executive. And keeping in mind, it's only been used a handful of times, three times in the whole 245-year history of the country. I think it is important to understand that these continue to not be normal times and Trump's behavior has been particularly shoddy and particularly poor and that while I don't necessarily like the case or the crime they picked to go to impeachment on it's been long overdue he has so many things emoluments clause violations um ethical issues and violations um, there's, I mean, just the number of things that Trump has done wrong goes on and on and on. And I think a lot of people are tired. They're fatigued. They're over it. They're ready to move on. Um, a, a small, a modest majority of Americans would like to see Trump removed from office. I think that's a signal of something. And I think ultimately it's not going to happen until November if the election goes the right way. But the simple fact that America is done with what has gone on with Donald Trump should be a, a sign that perhaps this whole thing has gone too far. And one of the things I told someone this week in private conversation is I said, well, tr whatever Trump has done is bad, the enabling he has gotten from Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans and House Republicans before 2018. In my mind, that is truly where the crime lies. They have let this go on. They could have stopped it multiple times. They could have, um, they could have, uh, they could have, you know, kept passing legislation or convinced him to sign pieces of legislation from the House or things that they were working on. And the fact of the matter is that they haven't continued to enable him to do these things and to break these rules, make these rule changes, um, and to continue to abuse the Constitution and the powers of the office. And that is, to me, a far, far worse crime than really anything Trump has done. And I find it 
history will probably not remember that, but it's worth mentioning that really the person who has let the Trump nightmare continue on for as long as the Trump nightmare has gone on really is Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans. It is at their feet. And before him, Paul Ryan and the House Republicans. It is really at their feet that this problem should be laid. And if the situation gets out of control and Trump refuses to leave office in 2020 or 2024, as his old lawyer, Michael Cohen, has said he might, you know, not do, then the responsibility for the destruction of this republic will lay firmly at the hands of people like Mitch McConnell. And history probably won't remember that. History very rarely picks up the leaders of the majority leaders of the Senate, the speakers of the House that stop things, enable things and allow bad things to occur. Name me who the Speaker of the House was during Nixon. Bet you can't do it. Uh, name me the president of the Senate or the majority leader of the Senate when Nixon was in. Sure, you can't do it. Um, you know, g give me the, these titular figures that could have or could have stopped what has gone on. And the reality is the history books don't usually mention them. The history book focuses on a singular figure. And while Trump will be blamed or vilified for whatever goes on, um, as, you know, as history is written about Mr. Trump, um, really the, the true criminals here are Mitch McConnell. And all I can do is encourage Kentucky voters to um, not vote for him in 2020. And if you're in the region, um, go campaign for the wonderful Democrat who's running against him. Because Mitch McConnell is actively, by continuing to enable Trump, causing problems for this country and this republic. And he's derailing this impeachment process. And I think that is probably the worst, the worst part of all. So... I'm going to leave you on that note this week. Bit of a short podcast. Um, been a long week here at the Cameron Journal. So we're going to let you go on that note. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll talk to you next week. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.